This podcast is made possible in part by The Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the line from Digital Island Studios in New York City is Tim Summer. Tim is a widely published music journalist. He was with Atlantic Records. In fact, he signed Hootie and the Blowfish. And he's been a major label recording artist and on and on in the music world. But most importantly, he's the author of a recently published book, Only Wanna Be With You, and it's about the inside story of Hootie and the Blowfish. So, Tim, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much for having me, Walter. All right. The story probably needs to start off with Hootie and the Blowfish before you came into their life, but then how you came into their life, I think, is is an incredible story, particularly in the music world. So, you know, we're going back to 1983 at the University of South Carolina. Five Points is a great jumping place. Kids were going there. The drinking age hadn't quite yet changed. They were going to something like group therapy and uh, Gus's and all sorts of places. But their first jam sessions were in the old Veil Block dormitories, which don't exist anymore. Uh, I think specifically Moore was the name of the uh, residence hall. Yeah. There were four or five of these things that were supposedly modern in the 1960s. And they called them the Veil Blocks. And uh, I think on the floor where the guys were, it was not unusual to fill the the veil blocks with beer cans. Anyway, uh, Tim, I'll let you tell the story. Well, I think it's a very, very common story, and that's one of the wonderful things about it. It's a story a lot of people can identify with. It's four young people coming together at college in their college dorms, loving music, learning to love music with each other in the 1980s. Uh, in this case, uh, Mark Bryan, who I believe uh, was in his freshman year, heard Darius Rucker sing in the shower. And Darius, I think, was a year ahead of Mark. And this would be initially in 1985. Darius was alone that day, which was not common. Usually there'd be people around. But Darius was alone in the showers in an afternoon. And uh, he was just singing away. He was singing a Billy Joel song. And when he came out of the shower, Mark Bryan was in the hallway, and Mark said, was that you singing? And Darius said, yes, yes, it was. And Mark said, well, I play guitar. Do you want to get together later and uh, sing some songs? And that's literally how it all began. And on the very first night or afternoon that those guys sat down and played together, they immediately drew an audience. People gathered around them and began to gather outside the doorway in the hallway, And from the very first time that Mark and Darius ever played together, just singing whatever songs they had in common, which was some police songs and some R.E.M. songs and uh, some country songs, whatever they could agree on, whatever they said, oh, yeah, I know that one, too. On that very first time they ever played together and more, they had an audience. And that was the beginning of the whole story back in 1985. Almost immediately, they began playing at a place called Pappy's, uh, which I think was in Five Points. Uh, I'm not sure the exact geography. Pappy's was a little bit closer to the campus than, than Five Points, which made it easier to transport that keg of beer they usually got for, for playing. Now, they started off playing as a, as a duo, didn't they? That's correct. They were a duo called the Wolf Brothers. The Wolf Brothers. Interesting name. Apparently, it was not a name that they had anything to do with uh, with uh, concocting. The, the, the band were, uh, well, they weren't a band yet. Darius, the very first time that Darius and Mark ever stepped on stage at Pappy's, a friend of theirs just happened to say, ladies and gentlemen, the Wolf Brothers. And that's how the name came about. Okay. It doesn't really need much introduction here in South Carolina, but the fact that you've got two teenagers, one white, one African-American, living in the same dorm together and then forming a band still was a little bit unusual, to say the least. The university had only been desegregated about 12 years when this happened, and there was still only a very small number of African-American students. And the experiences 
that others have have had on campus, it was not the easiest world in which to get an education. I think Darius is very vocal about the fact that this is something that as he moves through the world, as he moves through the growing, the rising of Hootie and the Blowfish and their success, as he moves through his unprecedented success as a country artist, that other people may not be as conscious of this, but he always is. It's something that is always with him and always on his mind. And that's something I, I, I address in the book. I address with a certain distance because I'm not African-American, but I let Darius tell that story and I let other commentators, including some fairly well-known uh, sociologists and African-American journalists, comment on what it is like to move through that world, to move through a world that has been almost exclusively white, meaning the world of country music. And before that, Darius Rucker, as the lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish, would step on stage, I would witness this myself many times, would step on stage in front of a, an arena full of 18,000 people. This would be in, say, 1995 or 1996. And I would look around and I would say to myself, you know, Darius is the only African-American in this room, and that's not something that I am thinking about, but I bet it's something that he's thinking about, and he did, and we do address that in the book. And we, you do address that specifically after Cracked Review came out when they do their concert on campus. There was a huge Confederate flag in a dorm room that fronted the stage. That's exactly right, yes. They did a big homecoming show in April of 1996, around the time of the release of their second album, Fairweather Johnson. And shortly before they went on stage, someone unfurled, you know, a, a Confederate battle flag from a position where really only Darius could see it. And, uh, and it was taken down, but it was a statement. Someone was trying to make a statement. And again, this is something that is part of the Hootie, Hootie and the Blowfish story, but it's also part of the story of rock and roll. And as I say in the book, because rock and roll was and is the sound of America's disenfranchised made electric, meaning the roots of the entire genre lay in music made by disenfranchised people, not just African-Americans, but also you know, the, the, the poor Irish and poor people in, in, in Appalachia and the poor Jews in the tenements who then began to help produce the music and release it. It is the story of America's disenfranchised made electric. And because of that, to me, all rock and roll and all pop music, even the most superficial, is political in some sense. And although that isn't a huge part of the story, I think it's there in a certain way on every page. Well, we, we've got the Wolf Brothers, and they decide that they really want to get serious about this. That's right. Being a band. And so then they add Dean Felber and Jim Sunfeld. That's right. Now, Dean is an old friend of Mark's. He uh, grew up with them in, the, uh, Washington, in Maryland, in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And he also attends the University of South Carolina. And in late 1985, Darius and Mark begin to think that they may want more than an acoustic duo. So uh, Mark approaches Dean. Dean says no, interestingly. He says no a whole bunch of times. Finally, Mark convinces him and says, okay, until we find someone else, will you play bass with us? And now... Uh, 38 years later, Dean's still playing with them. <laughs> and they also find a drummer named Brantley Smith, uh, who lives in a different dorm. So Brantley comes on board, and that's when they begin to move and they begin to learn more covers. They play more songs. They begin to experiment with doing their own songs, though nothing too serious yet. In 1989, they're beginning to do pretty well. They're beginning to play in front of larger audiences, more out-of-town gigs are coming into place. And Brantley, who's a big part of the band, Brantley, everyone seems to agree, every band member seems to agree that Brantley is the best musician who was ever in Hootie and the Blowfish, meaning the most competent musician, the most technically trained musician. 
Brantley is their drummer, but he also sings very well. He also plays the cello, which he'll do on some songs on stage. Occasionally, he even sings lead vocals on some songs. And in uh, 1989, mid-1989, as the band really began to get some momentum, in 1989, Brantley says, I'm beginning to think that I want to spend my energy with my faith. And there's some aspects of being in a rock and roll band. And as we begin to become a touring rock and roll band and playing more out-of-town shows and more exposure to sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll, I'm beginning to think that may be challenging my faith a little bit. And I'm going to commit myself to faith. So that's something that the band has a very intense talk about because they love Brantley and Brantley loves them. But they have a very amicable parting, and they, they honor the fact that Brantley has decided to choose his faith over continuing with Hootie and the Blowfish. But they need a new drummer. And Jim Sonnefeld, who at that point has played with a couple of prominent local bands in Columbia, South Carolina, most notably uh, Tootie and the Jones, who were <laughs> another uh, popular local cover band, they approach Sony and say... Uh, do you want to join this band? And Sonny says, yes, I do, but I want us to commit ourselves to playing original music. And in fact, I have a song I've written called Hold My Hand. And they fall in love with that song. And that song really becomes the template for their future direction. And uh, that's where the story really begins to take off with Hootie's commitment to being a band that play original music, though they still mixed in in 1990 and 91, and even to this day, they still mix in a lot of covers. So starting around 1990 with the uh, Jim Sonnefeld joining the band, that's when the story really begins to take off. And at that point, they begin playing every weekend at frats and at clubs and making a great deal of money. By the time I met the band in 1993, they were making $300,000, $400,000 a year, and that's a lot of money. The name Hootie and the Blowfish, how did that name come about? In 1985, right about the point where the Wolf Brothers duo decide to become a real band, they're searching around, and they're throwing around a bunch of names, and all of them are terrible. Uh, Darius told me some of those names. Sony told me some of those names, even though he wasn't in the band at the time. He was let in on them later. Um, the worst of them according to Sony. And one they almost decided on was Black and Blue, which I think as bad a name as Hootie and the Blowfish is, and honestly, it's one of the worst names that I've ever come across in the music industry. As bad a name as Hootie and the Blowfish is, Black and Blue is even worse. So uh, in 1985, Dean and Brantley and Mark and, and uh, Darius are trying to cast around for names and this is absolutely a true story. I had it confirmed by a number of different sources. Darius is at a party, and he's sitting on the floor. He's had a few drinks, and he, he announces, you know what? Uh, my band needs, needs a name. Any, anybody here have any ideas? And people begin throwing out things, and none of them are, make any sense at all. And while they're having this conversation, uh, I should preface this briefly by saying that Darius, then and now, is well known for giving everyone he meets nicknames. You know, sometimes instantly, sometimes it takes a while, but he, it's something, it's just a little quirk, a little hobby of his. And he had two friends from uh, the, the, the show choir he was in at the University of South Carolina. He had two friends, one of whom he had nicknamed Hootie and one of whom he had nicknamed the Blowfish. And so they're sitting on the floor at this party and they're drinking and... At the exact moment they're having this conversation, these two friends walk in the room. And Darius looks up and says, hey, look, it's Hootie and the Blowfish. And Darius stops, slaps his hand on his forehead and says, that's it. We're going to be Hootie and the Blowfish. And as ridiculous as it sounds, I actually had that story confirmed by a bunch of people who were, who were at that party, who were actually at that party and remembered the moment. <laughs> I, Tim, I think that's one of those serendipitous things. It happened. I will also say that that party was a party being thrown by the director, the choir director of Carolina Live. I believe that was the name of the... Uh, oh, yeah. Richard Kona. 
Dr. Richard Conant, who directed the choir, he was also the band director at, uh, in the music faculty here at the University of South Carolina. I think this is someone who, uh, very important to uh, Darius's life, much in the same sense that Sony's soccer coach, who I believe his name is Reardon, was very important to him as well. It's interesting. The band were not people who took school lightly. They were all very good students. And it wasn't just the social life at the University of South Carolina that meant something to them. I think the very these people, these soccer coaches, these choir directors, also had a big influence on the band. I think Hootie and the Blowfish's story is, in a, is absolutely... It's wedded to the story of the University of South Carolina in a very positive way, which is why it's kind of wonderful that this book, Only Want to Be With You, The Inside Story of Hootie and the Blowfish, has been published by the University of South Carolina Press, has been published by the University of South Carolina Press. Tim, we need to pause for a moment. Sure. And let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Tim Summer about his book, only Want to Be With You, the inside story of Hootie and the Blowfish. All right, Tim, I really liked your, your description of the interaction of Hootie and the Blowfish and the University of South Carolina out there because over the years, and we're still talking now in 2022 about connections, Darius in May did a big concert at Carolina, actually in the arena, uh, the basketball arena, sell out, of course, and they have continued their association with, with their alma mater. Student life in the 1980s, entertaining themselves in the dorm. Student life today, folks are connected by the Internet more than they are. The bull sessions and the kind of things that, that were still happening in, in the dorm. And it's quite clear through the book, as the band evolves and changes and some people drop out, others come in, is that first group really was very close. They talk about they loved each other. That's a big theme in the book, and I, I think the whole first third of the book is really about the fact that it was a different time. And I try to give a picture of what that era was like, that era when we stood on street corners waiting for people. We were not connected by phones. We were connected by time. As you said, this was a time when we sat around and we 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 played guitars and we talked to each other and i'm not i'm not in any way shape or form judgmental of the way things are now much in the same way you know my parents lived in a different era i lived in a certain era uh, and it's true maybe my parents the time they grew up in in the 1930s 40s and 50s probably had more in common with the 1980s and 90s than the 1980s and 90s have in common with now but it was a different era, and that goes down to the way the music industry worked. It goes down to the way bands were formed. It goes down to the way you interacted when you went to a club. Now, it's extremely important. Today, when college-age kids go out, it's very much a DJ culture, meaning you go in and someone's standing on stage with a couple of turntables, and that's what is entertaining you. In the 1980s and 90s when you went out and in the time Hootie and the Blowfish were being formed, you went out and you expected to see a live band on stage. And that live band would play some covers and they played some originals. And that was a very, very different culture. It was a different era. Again, I'm not saying it was a, a superior era, but it was intrinsic to the way Hootie and the Blowfish were formed and the culture they came out of, which wasn't just the culture of the University of South Carolina. It was the culture of the Mid-South, and it was the culture of bands playing every weekend. And more than that, it was the culture of bands forming all over the country, whether it was in Winston-Salem, South Carolina, or Jacksonville, Florida, or Ithaca, New York, or New York City, or Seattle, or... Athens, Georgia, or Athens, Ohio, all over the country, kids are getting together in their dormitories, and they're saying, you like that band too? Wait, 
that's a guitar over there. You know, I have a bass back in my room. Let's get together and play. And next thing you know, you're learning songs together. And next thing you know, you're saying, let's go down to that club and get a gig. That happens in every city in the country. And one of those bands, one of those bands, Walter, was Hootie and the Blowfish. And yes, they became gigantic. But they're really just representative of a thing that was happening throughout the 1980s, throughout the 1970s, throughout the 1990s. And it was an era, it was a place in time that I don't think exists anymore. And in many ways, that's what the book is about. Well, one of the things that really caught my attention from a much earlier fraternity world in the 1960s, on weekends, fraternities would have parties with with live bands, and they made, yeah. they made a circuit the frat boy circuit or the frat circuit, and they played sorority houses too, uh, was a part of the story of the evolution of Hootie and the Blowfish. Gigantically, yes. Yeah. It was, maybe it was, was it just a Mid-South thing? Um, I think it was, it was more prevalent in the Mid-South than it was in other places in the country. And I think Dave Matthews' band have a very similar story. The way Hootie tell it and all their friends is you would go to a frat and you'd say, hey, we're a new band. We'll play your frat for free. Just feed us and give us some beer, and you give us the PA. We'll show up and play, and if you like us, you'll have us back. So they say that Hootie and the Blowfish, like other bands uh, of their type, and again, I'll mention the Dave Matthews Band. There's a band in Louisiana called Cowboy Mouth who are at the same circuit, who are kind of doing the same circuit. There are a lot of bands. Johnny Quest were a band who are gigantic in the Carolinas at the same time Hootie and the Blowfish were emerging. So these bands would would say, "Hey, give us a give a call a frat and say, give us a chance." Now you go to that frat, you'd win everyone over, and the next time the frat would say, "Hey, you guys were great. We'll have you back in four weeks, and next time we'll pay you three thousand dollars." So you do that next time, then you play another frat, then you'd say. Uh, you know, you call Clemson and you say, hey, we did real well at your house uh, in uh, in Columbia. Can we come play Clemson? And the next thing you know, you're playing in a whole circuit of colleges all through the Mid-South, and you're building a huge following just off of the frats. Now, the step half of, off of that is you say to the town, say, in, uh, you know, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, or Richmond, you say, well, we've done well in the frat. Let's move over to one of the local uh, clubs. And because you have the following you've built in the frat, you can play a club that you've never played before and bring in 600, 800, 1,000 people. The club are blown away, and they say, wow, you guys did that on a Thursday night. Next time we'll have you on a Saturday, and we'll give you twice as much money. You keep on doing that. And the next thing you know you're playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, sometimes Wednesday, sometimes Sunday, on a circuit that goes all the way from Jacksonville to Burlington, Vermont, sometimes as far west as uh, New Orleans. You're doing this whole circuit, and you're making a fortune, and you're also maybe doing your own original music and beginning, beginning to sell your own origin, your own CDs and your own cassettes that you sell off of the stage or from the back of your car in the parking lot. And you're selling T-shirts and you are making a business. And that's what Hootie and the Blowfish did. That's what Johnny Quest did. That's what Dave Matthews Band did. That's what Benfold Five did. You just, you hit those circuits, you did it without shame, and you did it in many ways, on your own terms, because all of those bands were playing original songs too. So this was an amazing way, an amazing way of doing business that, as you pointed out, probably existed in the ACC and the Mid-South much more than it did, say, in New York and Los Angeles, which were based on entirely different principles. Well, once they realized they were a business, they decided that they couldn't keep doing it by the seat of their pants. They needed somebody to manage them, right? That's correct. And they they took the advice. There was a godfather figure, and I mean godfather in a very positive sense, none of, none of the sinister <laughs> connotations. There was a godfather figure who's very important to the story named Dick Hodgson. And Dick Hodgson was a very well-respected figure all over the Carolinas. Bands would come to him for advice. Bands would come to him for production. And Hootie and the Blowfish went to him. Dick Hodgson wasn't that impressed by him, and he hated the name. And in fact, he didn't want to listen to the cassette because the name was so bad. But eventually he did listen to the cassette, and Dick's assistant was a fellow named Rusty Harmon. 
And Rusty said, you know, Dick, I'll take this on as my project. And Rusty became the manager of Hootie and the Blowfish. And though much later, and I'm jumping forward in the story half a decade, much later, uh, under the pressures of the major label and all of their success and all of the many millions of dollars and all the opportunities coming in in the mid and late 1990s, much later, Rusty's skills would be tested. But in the early 1990s, Rusty Harmon, with all of his energy and all of his charisma, really he was a fifth member of that band, and he was the perfect person for Hootie and the Blowfish because he gave them his life. He gave them all of his energy. He gave them everything as a manager that Darius Dean, Mark, and Sony were giving to the creative side of the band. And that's the atmosphere. By the time I met the band in the summer of 1993, they were as big as a local band could be and certainly as bigger than any unsigned band that you would see in New York or Los Angeles. And, and he was moving them into the club world away from, That's the, right. up from the frat circle. That's right. They were playing a club in Charleston, South Carolina, right? Is that when you met them? Yeah, they were playing a club called Mishkins. You were based on the West Coast back then, Tim. Yes, I was based in Los Angeles. So how in the heck did you hear about Hootie and the Blowfish? In... The summer of 1993, in the early summer of 1993, they had put out a CD called Coochie Pop, uh, five songs, I think it was, and it began selling a lot regionally, and their cassettes had sold very well regionally. Atlantic Records had a uh, department called Retail Information Services. The entire nature of that department was just to call stores. They called stores and they said, mostly they said, how is our product doing, meaning Atlantic Records product? What can we do to help you? Uh, is there anything we should be paying attention to? And usually at the end of those phone calls, the person on the phone would go, and the person on the phone in this case was a very young person whose office was literally a broom closet in New York named Scott Schiff. And at the end of this particular phone call to a store in Columbia, South Carolina, Scott says, okay, now that we've talked about how Atlantic's records are doing, anything down there that I need to know about? Do you have any independent records or unsigned bands I need to know about? And uh, the guy on the other end of the phone says, um, well, there's been a band down here that's been doing really well for ages called Hootie and the Blowfish, but you probably know about that already. I mean, everyone already already does down here. And Scott says, no, I don't know anything about that. Tell me more. So they begin to tell Scott a lot about Hootie and the Blowfish and about the fact that in the Mid-South and the Carolinas, there's really no band bigger than Hootie and the Blowfish. Scott's very impressed by this, and he says, okay, give me a manager's number. I'll get in touch. Scott calls up Rusty Harmon, and Rusty's not interested. Rusty says, we've already sent records to Atlantic. Atlantic already sent us a form rejection letter. We've been rejected by any label in the business. We're doing fine our own. Good night. Have a nice day. And Scott says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just, just send me something. Let me see what I can do. And Rusty says, okay. Rusty sends him a record. More than anything, Scott's job was numbers. His job was not to listen to music, but his job was numbers, and he was very, very impressed by the numbers Hootie and the Blowfish were doing, which were virtually unprecedented for an unsigned band. Now, let's take a step sideways. In the summer of 1993, we're at the high noon in the age of grunge, and all the major labels are interested in, in an almost manic way, all the major labels are only interested in one thing, and that's grunge. The music coming from Seattle, music like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and Stone Temple Pilots down in Los Angeles, and on and on and on and on. Everyone is terrified that they're going to miss the next Nirvana. So all anyone is chasing is grunge. Nobody is signing anything like Hootie and the Blowfish or looking at anything like Hootie and the Blowfish. But Scott Schiff, whose job is just to sort of crunch numbers in New York, he knows the numbers on Hootie and the Blowfish are irresistible. So he sends the record to his boss. His boss sends the record to the Los Angeles office to a fellow named Danny Goldberg, who runs the Los Angeles office. Danny Goldberg walks into my office with a package, and he says, hey, uh, retail Information Services in New York says something's happening here. Will you listen to it and tell me if there's anything here, Tim? That's what Danny said. He said, just tell me if it's anything. 
because Danny and I know that this could be anything. This could be a bar band that's 55 years old. <laughs> this could be a bunch of guys who just play crowd-pleasing, bad funk music. So Danny just drops his package on my desk and says, Tim, d- tell me if this is anything. First thing I notice is the name, which is terrible. But it is what it is. And to this day, I've said, if you want to prove that names mean nothing, look at the success of Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> so anyway, this CD, I open up this CD. Uh, I put it on, and I'd like to say that fireworks went off like it's the opening credits of Love American Style. <laughs> but that's not what happened. I put it on, and I went, huh, this is interesting. This isn't just like bad bar rock, because I thought that's what it might have been, what it might be. There's something interesting going on here. Okay, it's kind of an R.E.M. meets John Mellencamp kind of thing. I hear a little bit, a bit of a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in there. Okay, that's, this is interesting, and had a very interesting vocalist. And I will confess that that right away, on very, very first listen, Darius Rucker reminded me a little bit of Eddie Vedder. Uh, but the music didn't sound anything like Pearl Jam. It sounded like this chimey, rich, th- southern pop, which I love. I'd always loved R.E.M. I'd always loved the D.B.'s. I'd always loved uh, Let's Active, uh, another band from the Winston-Salem area. So I picked up a phone, and I called Rusty, and I said, Rusty, I want to come see this band. So we booked a time for me to come to uh, the Carolinas. First, I would see the band play in Charleston, and then the next night I would see him play at, uh, in, at Rockefellers, which was really, Rockefellers is very, very much the band's, I think, was the band's clubhouse in many ways. I fly to Charleston, and this part of the story is absolutely true. I walk into Michigan's, I walk in late, uh, the gig has already started, and instantly, I mean in the first 30 seconds, I knew I wanted to work with this band. I did not know that they were going to be incredibly successful. This is what I did know. I like these guys. They look like guys I want to hang out with. I like this music. Man, that guy can sing. I love these original songs. I want to work with them. And I literally decided within the first 30 seconds that I was going to sign that band. Now, I'm just a lowly A&R person. Did you have the authority to sign them like that? No, I did not. But I did have the courage of my convictions, which is probably one of the reasons Danny Goldberg had hired me in the first place, is because of that weird mixture of... uh, of courage of convictions and arrogance, that even though I did not have the authority, that night in Michigan's, as soon as the show was over, I walked backstage and I put out my hand and I said, uh, I'm Tim, and I'm going to sign your band to Atlantic Records. Then uh, I took it for granted that that's what was going to happen. So then I spent the rest of the trip basically just getting drunk with them. Okay. And that at that time, that was part of the concert. Uh, and their their favorite... Beverage was. Um, this is interesting. I was trying to. Re- I was having a discussion the other day where I was trying to remember this with someone. Royal Crown uh, Royal Crown Royal and Coke, I and Jägermeister and Jägermeister. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Crown Royal and Coke, very much a frat boy kind of drink. Those of us who drink something else as adults these days. And it's of- interesting what 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 you can palate when you're thirty years old. I was. Hey. 31 at the time, Moody and the Blowfish, yeah. or 28, 29. What you can palate at 28, 29 just makes you sick just <laughs> thinking about it Yeah, when, <laughs> when you're 60. Let's put it that way. Uh, and every now and then there was a little bit of weed too, right? I don't think I would be telling any tales out of school to say that was a big part of the Hootie and the Blowfish story. Okay. Well, I mean, it was also part of the college scene back then. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I think... In no way did the considerable amount of weed and alcohol, and I'm going to pref- I'm going to give a little parenthetical clause right here and say an interesting thing about Hootie and the Blowfish in general, not as a rule, but in general, is they were more of a, a weed and alcohol band than they were a, a sex and drugs band. 
for better or worse. You know, they, they got high and they played Madden. That's what those guys did. They didn't get high and go out and get in trouble with strip clubs. Well, but what they did do was get high and play Madden. And also, they didn't have a, a set program. They would ask the audience what, some, what they wanted to hear, right? You know, at the height of their fame, Hootie and the Blowfish never used a set list. That's changed since then. They had a wonderful manager in the early 2000s named Doc McGee, who's a legend in the music business. He also worked with Kiss and Bon Jovi and on and on and on. Doc McGee said, enough of that crap. You guys are going to start using set lists. But in the 1990s, they would just sort of look at each other on stage and say, what do you want to play next? And that's what they would do. And, and yes, they would respond to their audience in a, in a very real way. All right. Tim, we've got to pause a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Tim Summer about his book, Only Want to Be With You, The Inside Story of Hootie and the Blowfish. Tim, I think we need to move on to, let's get them signed and moved on to Cracked <laughs> Review. We've only, got, we've only got 15 minutes. Cracked Review, Cracked Review. I was fortunate enough to be in the studio every day we made Cracked Review. In 1994... Most bands spent a quarter of a million dollars on records, half a million dollars on records, even a million dollars on records. Cracked Review was made for $35,000. And all of us, Darius, Dean, Mark, Sony, myself, Don Gaiman, who produced the record, I think we would all agree on this. We have never, ever been involved in a recording project that went easier and was more fun. It was just a breeze to make that record. It came out of them naturally. We worked all day. We went to bars in Los Angeles at night. We had a wonderful time making that record. It felt like a magical time. Did we at any point know we were making one of the most successful albums in history? No. We knew we were making we were making an album we were very proud of, and we had a great time making it. Now, moving on a little bit from there, we finished the album, and uh, in April of 1994, it's part of my job to play this, the album for the head of A&R, and technically, he's the one who's going to make the decision about if Cracked Review is going to be released. I play the album, and the head of A&R rejects the record. He says, there's nothing here. Uh, his exact words were, this is unreleasable. There are no singles on this record. And as I say in the book, there are times in your life where you are the right person at the right place at the right time. And I've always said, I did not discover Hootie and the Blowfish. I did not even tell Atlantic Records about Hootie and the Blowfish. However, I was the person who was in the right place at the right time when the head of A&R said, we are not releasing that, this record. I said, I'm not going to take no for an answer. And I walked into my boss, Danny Goldberg's office, and I said, Danny, the head of A&R said, this record is unreleasable. Respectfully, I disagree, and I'll stake my job on it. Danny looks up at me and he says, exactly like this. Uh, Timmy, if it means that much to you, we'll put it out. And that's what happened. And they put out Cracked Review, and it became the biggest selling album in the history of Atlantic Records. And we didn't expect that to happen, but it did happen, and I'm proud of that. And I'm proud to have been part of this amazing experience. It's one of these times... And I can't say this enough, and this sounds like a big statement, but I promise you, Walter, it's true. It was a time when the nicest band I had ever met became the biggest band that I had ever known. And that's a wonderful thing. And uh, it obviously when it sold, what, 25 million copies? Ev eventually, yes. Eventually 25 million copies, and it kept minting money for Atlantic Records. That's right. And it's when Hootie and the Blowfish decided to stop that train a little bit. In 1996, Atlantic wanted to keep on selling Cracked Review, and they could have. Atlantic said, we do not want you to put out another record. We do not want you to put out your second album. We want to keep on working Cracked Review. And Hootie and the Blowfish said, well, 
we are working band. All of our heroes were working bands. What we do as a band is we get in a bus. We get off the bus, we play, we get back on the bus. Every now and then we go in the recording studio, we put out a record. We put out a record so we can get back in a bus, play, and get off of a bus. And it's all they wanted to do. So what Hootie and the Blowfish wanted to do in the spring of 1996 was put out their second record. And I stood up for their rights to do that. I said to Atlantic Records, listen, these guys, you expected nothing out of them. You had no expectations of Hootie and the Blowfish, and they have done so well that they have literally kept the lights on in this company. They have earned the right to put out their second record, even if it's not what you want them to do. So they did put out their second record, and I will be very honest with you, and this is a big part of the story, and it's a big window into the corporate media and corporate major label industry in the 1990s. I don't think Atlantic Records ever forgave Hootie and the Blowfish for defying them and putting out that second record in the spring of 1996 when Atlantic just wanted to keep on working Cracked Review. And from that moment on, the relationship between Atlantic Records and Hootie and the Blowfish went downhill. And this is a big part of the story, as I said. The fact that in 19, late 1995, early 1996, Hootie and the Blowfish are the biggest thing that ever happened to Atlantic Records. By 19, late 1998, early 1999, Hootie and the Blowfish can't even get their calls returned by Atlantic Records. And that's a big part of the story. And it's, uh, I, I think I provide some insight into that. And, and the kids, and I will call them kids, had a hard time getting over that. I mean, they, they thought, look, we, yes, we've made you guys millions, and now you won't answer our phone calls. That's exactly right. They thought, hey, we've done so much for you guys, you'll always be our friends. And that's just not the way business works, right? Right. And the name of that second album was? Fairweather Johnson. Um, it did pretty well. It sold four or five million copies, but Atlantic were disappointed not in the sales of Fairweather Johnson, because five million copies. It was it was one of the biggest selling albums of of uh, nineteen ninety six. Atlantic wasn't so much disappointed in that, but disappointed, I think, in the fact that Hootie had defied them and that they couldn't keep on selling Cracked Review. And again, I think you'd think it was enough that it was the eleventh biggest selling album of all time. But Atlantic believed, and I believe that realistically believed that they could have made it to the first or second biggest selling album of all time. And when you defy the big boss, the big boss says, you know what, we're going to move on to somebody else. And that's exactly what happened. Plus, by 1998, some of the band's biggest fans and protectors at the company, myself included, Danny Goldberg, some other very important people like Kim Kyman, who was their product manager, and Jim Lawrence, who was their publicist, by 1997, 1998, these people had moved on. There were, I was no longer there to sort of protect the band. Let's put it that way. And so they, they moved to another label, right? They moved to an independent label called Vanguard. They put out a couple of records. Uh, Hootie and the Blowfish put out some good records, some very good records between... Uh, 1998 and 2005, the third album they put out for Atlantic, Musical Chairs, which is the last one that I worked on, is actually my favorite, my favorite Hootie and the Blowfish record. But by 2005, their recording career and their career sort of as a performing band, though they were still doing well, and they were doing very well in the corporate circuit. And the corporate circuit is the one of the great secrets of of rock and roll. Well, now, Meaning, you, you're talking about when some company or some multi-billionaires from uh, the West Coast wants to have a private party, they bring in the band, right? That's right. Like uh, Hewlett Packard would say, we're going to do a big anniversary party this year, and we want Hootie and the Blowfish to play it. And they'll pay him a lot of money, or Audi, or Mercedes-Benz, or even just a billionaire will say, yeah, I want you guys for my, uh, for my bachelor party. Yeah. All right. They're doing that, but 
things are a little bit shaky. The, the band never breaks up officially, correct? Yeah, and I think that's something that's very important to know is that I think a lot of people still think they've simplified this story inaccurately. They think to themselves, oh, Hootie and the Blowfish broke up, then Darius Rucker became a big country star. That's not what happened. Hootie and the Blowfish were still out there playing. Um, I want to interject that they don't even, no one even cares that much that the audiences have gone down. They just love playing so much. They're still the same spirit they've had that got the band together in 1985. They're just, they're four best friends still playing together. But in 2007, 2008, Jim Sonnefeld and Dean Felber say, hey, we want to pause this a little bit. We want to pause for our health, for our psychological health. We want to pause because we want to get to know our kids a little bit before they go to college. So they say, let's hit a pause button here. Let's put this band on hiatus for a little while. Meanwhile, Derry says, great, but I love working. I love playing. I'm going to keep on working. Do you guys, I'm going to put out a little country record. And Darius Rucker wanted to make a little country record. That's his own words. He thought, I'll go home. I'll find a little studio in South Carolina. I'll find a little studio in Charleston. I'll just uh, find some friends, some mandolin players and some fiddle players. I'll make a little country record. But Capital Nashville and CAA come to him and say, we don't want you to make a little country record. Darius, we want you to make a big country record. And that's exactly what happened. But Hootie never broke up. Hootie hit a pause button, went on hiatus. Darius Rucker took advantage of that hiatus to start making his own records. But then they have come back together since then. That's right. They never, as I said, they never broke up. In fact, they played at least once or twice every year at their own charity events. And they, charity and giving back to the community was built into Hootie's DNA. It's something they were doing before when they were still a frat band. They were still playing a lot of charity events. Hootie have a foundation and they put on a couple events each year. Monday after the Masters is one of them. So they, even in throughout the 2000s, they were still getting together every year to play one or two charity events. But in 2019, both them and the business around them, meaning their agents and their management, and their, their, their attorney, Gus Gussler, who's a huge part of this story and has been with them since, uh, since the early 1990s, these people say, it's the 25th anniversary of Cracked Review is coming up. Let's do a big tour to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Cracked Review. And almost every one of the band members, Darius and Sony and Mark and Dean, all basically say, hey, it's a good idea, but is anybody going to come? And their agent at CAA, Rob Light, Rob Light says, people are going to come. It's time. People want to go back to the best moments. People who are now in their 40s and 50s, they want to go... Bring us back to that moment when we were 25 years old and screaming and happy and having a great time. So CAA had no doubts. So CAA said, we're going to put together a big tour for, for you. And then the 2019 tour, the 25th anniversary of Cracked Review, becomes one of the biggest tours of 2019. And even when you do the adjustment in the, in the economy, in 2019, Walter, Hootie and the Blowfish did bigger numbers than they were doing in 1996. And that's just amazing. And they did this, how fortuitous could it be, 2019, just before COVID? Yeah, the tour made, Walter, the tour made $50 million. Mm. And if it had happened six months later, it would have made zero million dollars. Oh. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Parallel to this, of course, and I'm just going to say this very quickly, you the emergence of Darius Rucker as the most successful African-American country artist of all time. And that's just an amazing story, and that's in the book, book as well, Walter. All right. I hate to say this, Tim, but Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. <laughs> uh, any last words for our listeners before we do sign off? Uh, no, I think that Hootie and the Blowfish and Darius Rucker they are proud to be from South Carolina. Their story is inseparable from Columbia, inseparable from the University of South Carolina. And unlike so many bands, 
they still belong to the state. And their story, I think when you tell the cultural history and the history history of the state of South Carolina, Hooney and the Blowfish are right in there. Their name goes right in there. And I'm so happy and so proud to not only have been a very small part of that story, but have been able to tell that story in this book, Only Want to Be With You. Tim Summer the author of Only Want to Be With You, the inside story of Hootie and the Blowfish. Thanks again for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. In his closing remarks, Tim Sommer, the author of Only Want to Be With You, the inside story of Hootie and the Blowfish, said that Hootie and the Blowfish were very much a part of South Carolina's cultural history. And I very much agree with him. When I wrote South Carolina a History back in 1996 and 97, I said the following. Perhaps no one better symbolized the casual acceptance of personal relationships than the Columbia band Hootie and the Blowfish. Their album, Cracked Rear View, sold more than 15 million copies. In its review of 1995, Newsweek magazine described the group as follows. An interracial band that made only passing mention of their racial identity, they became the most popular rock group in America, shaping the musical year in their image. In a year of intense racial polarization, highlighted by the Million Man March and the response to the O.J. verdict, their catchy pedestrian songs and videos made Just Getting Along feel downright commonplace. Just Getting Along, that's what most South Carolinians were trying to do in the 1980s. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.